Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Brent. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have been uh, bantering things around, I think, for several years. I can't even remember what the first thing was that you and I probably bantered around. seems like I don't know. I don't even know. But I know that uh, we have uh, had our share of agreements and disagreements on LinkedIn, and I thought and you thought it was time to let's bring it to a little bit more live conversation here on the podcast. So I'm delighted to have you on here, brother. Um, I, I want to hear first and foremost, first I want to let you introduce yourself, but I also know you got some big news to share about some recent mergers or something. So I want to hear about that. And then we're going to dive into a pretty meaningful conversation. So uh, tell us who you are. 
All right, Jason, thanks for having me. We are, this relationship is absolutely a product of a LinkedIn algorithm that somehow uh, connected our comments to one another. And, and here we are. Uh, I'll share a little bit of my background serving as founder and CEO of Evertrue. Uh, I often tell the story, which is uh, my entrepreneurial journey actually began back in Iowa. I grew up on a farm in Northeast Iowa. I was the oldest of three boys. Neither of my parents went to college and getting the opportunity to pursue higher education was always a dream of mine and my family's. I was fortunate to get recruited by Brown University to play football. I arrived at Providence uh, as the eighth string fullback on a team that passed for 400 yards a game, which is not what they told me on my recruiting trip, but I stuck it out. I ended up being captain my senior year of the team. Uh, and really, through that experience, got access to an incredible alumni network that helped me uh, pursue my first uh, job out of college, uh, really guided me on what the career landscape looked like. I had no family relationships to lean on and ultimately uh, had an opportunity to join an investment bank in Chicago called William Blair and Company. I started there in the fall of 2000 or in the summer of 2004. And one of the first things I did when I got to Chicago was try to understand what the Brown community was like there. I Googled the Brown you know, alumni chapter activities. I found a meetup at a, at a lawyer's uh, office for the Brown Club of Chicago. I went to that meetup, said, hi, I'm the new guy. And I left that meetup. The young alumni coordinator of the Brown Club of Chicago went on to serve as vice president of the club and ended up really having a very fulfilling four years in that volunteer role uh, working uh, a lot during the day, during the week, and volunteering a bunch at night. Also got involved with the Brown Football Association. And uh, after my time in Chicago, I returned to the Northeast to uh, pursue my MBA at Harvard. When I got uh, to Harvard, somebody from Brown reached out and said, hey, Brent, you were a great volunteer in Chicago. Your fifth reunion's rolling around. Would you be willing to lead your fundraising campaign? And I said, absolutely. Count me in. How can I help the school change my life? I would love to support the fundraising campaign. And so that was really my my gateway drug into the the world that I'm now working in. Yeah. But when I got that spreadsheet from Brown uh of my classmates, it was clear right away that there was a huge disconnect between the underlying database system that the university was using and who my classmates were. They had parents' yeah. addresses, the wrong email address, et cetera, et cetera, and uh after learning that there was really a, a, a data and technology challenge in the space. I decided to launch the company, uh, which I named Evertrue after Brown's fight song, Evertrue to Brown, which plays when the football team scores touchdowns, which I did one time against Dartmouth my junior year. So that was 10 years ago. Fast forward to today, uh, we're serving uh, as Evertrue proper, uh, nearly 200 uh, universities. We've specifically been focused on uh, building a system of intelligence that will complement underlying systems of record and really connect those database systems with the digital web in a way that helps us understand individual donors or key segments. One of the integrations we did along the way was with a company called ThankFew that was uh, really leading the charge as it related to introducing donor engagement via video at scale yep. to yep. more personalized donor experiences. Uh, after we saw the impact of connecting Thank You engagement data into Evertrue and being able to send segments from Evertrue to tailor campaigns in Thank You, it became clear that there was a much bigger opportunity to pursue uh, innovation in the sector together. And so in late October, we completed a merger 
with ThankView, supported by a private equity fund uh, in Colorado. And we uh, have recently completed that and are now off to the races. So that's my last 11 years in, uh, you know, four or five minutes, Jason. uh, And I really look forward to uh, learning from you and uh, getting connected with your audience today. Yeah, fantastic, Brent. And I love the uh, story, too. Um, I'm a baseball guy. I'm not a football guy. And we love our hometown baseball team. And, uh, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, and you weren't in Iowa recently, weren't you? I saw some pictures of cornfields and stuff. Yeah. So um, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, the baseball season got canceled. And that that hurt a lot of us, especially like to get out to the games. But uh, the one thing that our local ballpark did, this is an independent league. Uh, They play right in the middle. I think it was in May. Uh, They opened up the ballpark in May. And, uh, uh, and 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 let us watch on the you know jumbotron a, a, a uh, the field of dreams <clears throat> and my daughter my ten or eleven year old thirteen now she must have been twelve at the time she went to the ballpark and watched that with me that evening and probably one of the one of those one of the, one of those silly little moments but uh, but matters to dad moments I know you're a father well so. <laughs> Jason it's funny you say that because when I was in Iowa last summer my wife also grew up there. We have a ton of family there. We've got three little boys. We love exposing them to kind of that part of our lives. And yeah. uh, and so we were spending an extended period there in August, and they actually played the first Major League Baseball game at the Field yes. of Dreams. Yes. And it was a hot ticket. We did not end up going to the game, but we did go down to Dyersville, and they had a huge community watch party right in the little uh, town square. Uh, and, it, and it was a pretty special moment. So it was great to see. Uh, that movie get a, a second sort of jolt of uh, attention, uh, you know, 30 years plus later. So Brent, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion, and we don't do a lot of prep. Uh, we don't, uh, you know, usually I know my guests well enough to know perhaps some of the direction the conversation might go, but uh, what do you got for us today? I think the big idea here, Jason, is coming out of the pandemic we have a real opportunity with no additional staff, no new headcount, to 10x coverage of the giving pyramid. We have about 40 million donor records on the Evertrue system, over $200 billion of giving data. We know every single assignment status of every donor across hundreds of university clients. And across our partner base, roughly 2% of prospects are assigned to a gift officer today. And of that 2%, Half actually get a single contact over the course of a 12-month period. So 1% of a donor population is getting one-to-one engagement, even though we call this a relationship business. And I think that coming out of this, we've got an opportunity to 10x or more the personalized engagement happening uh, in a more data-driven world, a technology-enabled, somewhat automated world. and a world in which we are now all a Zoom link away and will be forever. Uh, and we do not need to get uh, on a plane to go right. do that basic discovery work that was incredibly time intensive, costly, uh, and generally low ROI, given that all of our donors have learned how to conduct their financial lives in every other aspect in a remote, yep. mobile first environment. The same thing's going to happen to philanthropy. And it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, let's see if you and I are saying basically the same thing. Because I said I I had a speaking engagement out in the 
Chicago suburbs right before the pandemic. This was like October of 2019. And I said to a group of about 100 fundraisers, I said, as the baby boomers move into that solid major donor category, where they're sort of the where they are solidly the go-to 65-plus-year-old major donor that we're calling on, the expectation for engagement is going to be twice as high, but because their life expectancy is going to be longer, their gifts may be half as much as their parents. And I think, so I'm thinking, I think that's where that other 98% of those, you know, the the other big, huge mega slice of that pie that you're talking about that's unengaged. I think we've got hundreds of hundreds of perhaps hundreds of thousands of unengaged major donor prospects, baby boomer types, 55 to 65 years old. They're maybe giving you $1,500, $2,500 a year, and they would totally engage on a like you and I are talking about but they're going to want to talk to a human being. Is that who we're talking That's right. about? I think you're spot on. And there is, is uh, a tremendous depth of research in the commercial sales and marketing world that speaks to the same point. And historically, the, um, the for-profit world had operated pre-pandemic that in the enterprise sales world, let's call it at the $100,000 plus contract level, yeah. You are not going to close that contract unless you get on a plane and you go see somebody. Sure. And there's going to be calls and Zooms and so forth in the yeah. interim, but it's yeah. field-based. And it looks a lot like the traditional major gift role. Yeah. But then there was this huge category in the commercial world that over the last 15 years has exploded that all the way down to the $5,000 or so contract yeah. level up to let's call it 50,000 and maybe even above, that would never rely on a field visit. It was exclusively inside sales. And then at the $5,000 and below level, you really couldn't even afford to spend money on inside sales because you wouldn't cover your costs. So you needed to be able to convert those customers and renew them in a much more touchless manner through swiping the credit card online, through the email nurturing and so forth. And you contrast that. And, and just for your uh, listeners sake, I've worked almost exclusively in the education advancement sector. So if what I say doesn't resonate outside of education, you, you, know, my, you know, my bad, I'm just not sure. as familiar. So I'm speaking yeah. through the lens yeah. of education. When you can contrast what I just said, a hundred thousand and above field base, five to a hundred thousand inside sales, 5,000 and below really direct marketing conversion. In the higher ed sector, we've historically had it be very binary. You're either in a portfolio and you might be in a leadership gift officer portfolio and you might have a thousand dollar target next to your gift level. They're still going to get in a car and go see you. They're still going to fly out and see you in some cases. And I'll try to book a bunch of visits, but the actual work of a leadership gift officer, the day-to-day, the tools, the approach was not that different from a major gift officer or even a principal gift officer, it was very binary. You're in the field or else you're in a call center list or you're in the yeah. mass marketing list or the giving right, day list. Right. Yes, right. All that nuance that we have in the commercial sector has not been present in this sector. And that is a tremendous opportunity. Where's inside sales in fundraising? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the 
right? There's a, there's a donor who's, I, I talk about this with all my clients. I said, there's a, you, you can almost look at the data. You can find in organization's data, there's sort of a threshold where they're, where they're basically their direct mail program, their direct response, their special events. There's sort of a threshold in a lot of organizations. I, I tend to see it. I work with in a lot of the K through 12 space. So it tends to be at about the $2,500 level. And I'm saying to them, you know, that's the level where you're doing in mass stops stops working or it starts to wane. And the donor is basically saying to you collectively, if you don't engage with me in more meaningful ways, I'm not writing you a check. And it tends to be between that like 25, you know, and again, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of private, private yep. independent schools, but it's 25 to $5,000. And if you think about the average donor in that, in that sort of setting, they're probably 35 to 40 years old, up to about 50 years old. And that's probably the place where that for a 42-year-old dad, mom or dad at private school, a $5,000 gift is a big deal to them. Um, and I'm just thinking about how many charities across the country have got just hordes of 42 to 55-year-old donors phase of life. And then I'm also thinking about this, this older cohort of baby boomers who are not going to become your six-figure donors. But they're sort of plateaued at that twenty five hundred bucks, unless you can like have a conversation like today. That is spot on, and I think that the psychology of the five thousand dollar gift is not that different than the the psychology of the five thousand dollar B two B purchase. It's that same level where if I don't talk to a salesperson, I'm not sure that I'm going to be comfortable making that. That purchase, no matter how good their email copy is or what the subject line is, I need a little bit more. And that's where I see an opportunity. You know, even if you just say that there are 200, let's call it 200 working days in the year. And could you have five conversations every day like you and I are having right now, Jason? I have today. That's a thousand conversations per year in a sector that has historically accepted a hundred visits as the target. And we are now starting to see progressive partners saying, hey, at the top of the pyramid, hear what you're saying, Brent, but we're doing really well there. And so let's not take our eye off the ball, but we absolutely see the opportunity in the upper middle of the giving pyramid. The data doesn't lie. Looking at the people that have been pretty consistent donors with wealth who are unassigned, who've never had a visit and candidly are not going to get a visit if we're working 150 person portfolios for the next 10 years. Yeah. Until a decade plus goes by. But if we could identify that audience who today is in our call center list or just getting our direct marketing or we hope that they give on giving day and start to carve that off and assign it to a new category of gift officer that is has every tool at their disposal except for plane tickets and rental cars. And they can do the work that you and I are doing right now, five meetings a day. So doable. We've all been doing it. Five donor visits a day times 200 days is a thousand visits per year. Even for a small K 12 school, think if you're able to talk to 500 to 1,000 more donors on a personalized level every year, what that would mean in short term annual fund revenue and longer term pipeline, because you're actually learning who they are, what they care about, and there's a real stewardship element to this kind of. Uh, work as well. And and think about what you're solving there too, because this is what all of my listeners routinely hear me saying, 
get into donor facing work. And, and I totally believe in this sort of this perceived proximity. I mean, the proximity that's essentially created virtually between you and I, you and I are, are essentially as close as we would be if we were sitting in front of a, you know, sitting across a coffee table at a Starbucks, uh, uh, you know, in your town or mine. And I think, I think part of the solution that we're talking about or part of the part of the opportunity that we're talking about is a solution to this turnover problem that has got fundraisers in jobs, highly relational people. I got them on this podcast all the time. You've got a podcast too. You talk to them. These are highly relational people that gravitate to conferences. They're the, some of the best conversationalists we have. And then we put them in jobs that are not conversational jobs, right? So you put them behind a desk doing all this automation. And I'm thinking, okay, if you actually lean into that job description that you, Brent, just sort of described, I think I'll keep somebody around and I'll actually train them up. You know, that's a that's a 28 year old right there that you just described. absolutely. You know, you know, not a 45, 50 year old major gifts officer who's got to be extremely, you know, experienced and trained. That's a 28 year old who perhaps graduated from the school that they're working at. Um, and knows how to have conversations with Mr. Johnson or Mrs. Smith. No doubt. You don't have to be five times rock a day. stars. Yeah. Five <laughs> times a day. And then, you know, there's a challenge. And I'm not really sure, Mr. Lewis, I'll get right back to you. I'm actually going to go try to chase down the dean and learn a little bit more because I don't have the right. full understanding right. of that specific issue. But let me get back to you. And then I get back to you. And that is, I mean, the fact that we're talking about this as if it's like some new novel, innovative idea that I've come up with. We're just talking about inside sales, which has been a thing for 50 years in the commercial sector. And for whatever reason, it's been all or nothing here. Your major gifts or you're in the annual giving campaign. And that gray area uh, is, is really a tremendous opportunity. And what you just touched on in the midst of the great resignation, uh, the opportunity to both create a homegrown talent pipeline by having an on-ramp where somebody comes in, they start working in this tech-enabled high-velocity role with every used to having five meetings a day and conducting a high level of personalized activity and outreach through email, LinkedIn, maybe it's text message, et cetera. They are going to be the digitally native gift officer of tomorrow. So as they grow in their career, by the way, in concert with the prospect pool who is also going to be growing in a way that they're accustomed to this kind of engagement, you're going to have an even more efficient major gift talent pipeline down the road. I also think this is a huge opportunity, just anecdotally, the number of young working parents who've reached out as we've written about the importance of remote work and more flexible work at Evertrue, who've reached out asking for jobs saying, I would love to stay in this work, but I cannot be away from my family four days a week for the rest of my life. But what you're describing, Brent, having five meetings a day while I'm sitting in my home office, and then I can shut my laptop and be with my family at night, that sounds like my dream job. And so we can't be concerned about the talent uh, churn and the resignations if we're also not acknowledging what it would take to create a simple role that would be a dream job for people that are passionate about nonprofit giving and impact, but also want to work in a more tech-enabled yeah. way that's more efficient and be around their family. Let's do it. Okay. So you know as well as I do, we're talking about a change in job description. 
I told you before we hit the I, I told you before we hit the record button. I was cited. I was quoted in the Chronicle of Philanthropy in 2019 as saying that this is the way we didn't know the pandemic pandemic was coming, and we didn't know that we would be having this conversation. But I said that I thought I was basically of the opinion that a lot of the fundraising jobs of the future were an increasing number of these jobs were basically going to look like what we traditionally understand to be major. What I was basically saying is, is that the fundraiser of the future is a donor facing role. And I think we're going to increasingly see these that this is what we say to all of our clients, Brent, what we call lane one is going to increasingly be either volunteer driven, automated or outsourced. And so you're either going to hand it off to volunteers to drive it like they're perfectly capable of doing, which is like you're giving Tuesdays, et cetera, et cetera, that really can be driven if you want them to be, or they're going to be outsourced and automated. And so I, I think if you think about characterization of a lot of what of our, a lot of our in-house paid fundraisers are doing, and then if you also think about what you and I were just tossing back and forth for a few moments there before I, I went on this little rant, we're a complete overhaul and a redefining of what a lot of people have as a job description when it comes to a fundraiser. And I'm talking about fundraisers in jobs, you know, higher ed, human services, K through 12. I mean, across the board, you're talking about a different job description, right? No doubt. And, uh, it's inevitable. First of all, it's already happening and it's going to continue to accelerate. It made sense. It's not like the pandemic invented Zoom. It had been around right. for a yes, decade right. before the pandemic, but it 30x'd in usage from 10 million yep. to 300 million in a four month period. We're not yep. going to unlearn that. And yep. donors aren't going to unlearn that. And so I don't think that we, you know, in the midst of longing for things to get back to normal and being able to have homecoming and reunion and all that stuff, which in some cases I would argue is super important because they're the kind of experiences that some of these institutions are uniquely positioned to provide. But at the same time, 80% of that stuff that was in person is not coming back. 80% Mm -hmm. of the gift officer visits should not come back. The 20% Uh that is truly truly an experience, bring it back and people will show up in droves. And the 20% of gift conversations that truly warrant that additional context and nuance and experience that you get in real life off of Zoom, bring it back when it's high ROI. But the stuff that is low ROI, let's get rid of it. And I'm so worried that we are going to start hearing, okay, fiscal 23 planning Let's start, you know, 100 visits per year. Let's get right back to the same guide we had from 2019. I think there's a real risk there. You know, you, you, there was something you just, okay, so the, um, I've heard this said a number of times, and, and you know some of the other tension that we've been uh, addressing with the DEI initiatives and et cetera, et cetera, talk about what fundraising should look like. And I've heard a number of guests, and I've concurred with them, that special events for have sort of been hijacked by fundraising when in fact they should have all in many ways a lot of the events that you look at organizations as having should be fully integrated events that are really built for the community of the organization whoever you are and so in many ways 
If you think about what we're talking about, we're not taking talking about taking the event off the calendar. We're just letting the event actually serve the purpose it's probably always been designed to serve. You follow what I'm saying? I do. I do. And I think that when you hear, I mean, you look at somebody's calendar, just look at somebody's calendar who's a major gift officer and ask yourself, when I look at it, are there five visits per day scheduled? Yeah. And if there aren't, what is there instead? And when you start looking at those things in the calendar, if it looks like, well, I've got to go start to plan some event for the dean or i've got to go meet with communications to talk about the branding around some you know priority craft a role that gets that stuff off the calendar that is donor centric that is focused on five visits a day and get everything else off their plate and you will be blown away at what will happen because people give to people and technology and automation and AI and data can all help, but it's got to help two human beings connecting around the ultimate discretionary purchase that is philanthropy. And uh, there's just way too much time spent on not that right now. So where's the sticking point in this? Because like one of the things I think we've already said, maybe this was before we hit the record button, but... Like I think some of us know that the boss or the boss's boss is already having these sort of aha moments and sort of realizing that this is sort of the wave, the future of where all this is going, and perhaps it should have been going this way for a long time. But where sticking point in all this? Um, because you know we've we've already sort of messed with the we we sort of messed with job descriptions, we've messed with other things. Where where are we stuck at? Well, I think that you've got just questions around incentives and what are the incentives of the various uh, stakeholders here. And when you think about what a president of a university is focused on, what a CFO of a university is focused on, especially in a post-pandemic context, when you think about what an advancement leader that was really nervous in March 2020 about what this would mean for gifts. And instead, they've all broken records in a fully virtual context with no events, with no galas, with no homecomings, (laughs) with no chapter events. And they all just broke records and endowments are through the roof. Yeah. They have to sit there and ask themselves, if we just broke, broke records in the absence of all of that stuff that we thought we had to have for programming in order to inspire people to give. Maybe we don't need all of that, or we can focus on the 20% that is really meaningful and do it at an even higher level with less budget and reinvest the rest of that into scaling relationship building in a one-to-one fashion, deeper in the giving pyramid, like we're describing. And that might be very different than what the rank and file staff wants or is hoping their boss uh, is thinking about. Um, you know, as we try to, quote unquote, get back to normal. Yeah, that reminds me of a conversation, Brent, and you guys might work with them uh, or certainly might want to work with them. But I had a guy on here from the Naval Academy who said, we talked to half as many people, but we raised as much money. I mean, 
you know, and, and the thing and the thing that he was basic part of what he was saying was these were people who actually wanted to talk to us. So it wasn't like he was, you know, leaving voicemails and then he finally that we've all done it if we're fundraisers. We've all um you know, finally caught that person when you know that you can almost feel it, that they're running out the door. They'd rather be running out the door. They don't want to be talking to you. But, um, and I remember in the middle of the pandemic, so that was much more recently, the conversation with our friend at the Naval Academy, but uh, in in the middle of the pandemic, so this would have been say the spring or summer of last year, I remember hearing from a guy at a, a big New York hospital who said, people are calling me back. And and what I start and I talked to the guy at Bloomerang, for example, and he said the same thing. They were tracking a lot more, you know, engage telephone calls. It was just there was a lot more telephone tracking and stuff. Yeah. And I just think that perhaps what we're what we're talking about here is more communication. We're actually talking about communication rather than you like use the word program rather than running these sort of mass communication machines that are churning out emails and churning out mail. We're talking about people talking to people. And we're probably figuring out that there's a lot, maybe there's a 30% of your population that's really not all that interested in what the hell you're doing. Uh, but you're figuring out that really are, and they'll actually have a conversation with you at two o'clock in the afternoon on zoom. Yeah. So that's spot on. And that's where I think um, there is such an opportunity to create to really connect content creation and the engagement that comes from that content with discovery work in a way that hasn't been done before. And this is a little bit of a shameless plug, but it could be applied more generally. Um, it's part of the reason we got so excited about Thank You. Thank You's had over 50 million videos sent by nonprofit fundraising organizations to their constituents. We know what those videos are about. We know who opened them. We know who yeah. clicked them. We know who watched 10% and stopped watching. We know who watched the entire video. And so when your president of your university puts out a video via thank you, talking about the strategic plan for 2030 and what the impact and mission is going to be, and 4% of the population watches the entire thing. Yeah. And of that group, 10% are high net worth unassigned prospects. You now know that they're informed. They cared enough to watch the whole thing. They've got wealth. We've got their past giving history, and they've never been visited before. How do we quickly go from that marketing campaign to now that is the group that we are going to have discovery outreach focused on? And we're not necessarily going to say, hey, Jason, we saw that you watched the entire video of the president and that you have this net worth profile. We're going to do the same things that smart fundraisers have done forever, but we're going to be able to be far more precise. And if we're going to spend the money creating the video, we're going to spend the president's time to tell the story, we might as well start converting the engagement into leads, into prospects. Uh, And that is where I start to get really excited about the intersection of all the storytelling that's happening and how that can more directly inform who gets assigned to whom and when. So I get the benefit because I'm the guy who hosts this show. You're and you're the you're the you're the profit making sort of owner of a company. Help help some of our fundraising friends out there understand that you have an incentive to figure out what works and what works really well, and that you're going to put against the status quo. I have tried to explain that to people fundraisers sometimes that sort of like to sit 
idle in whatever sort of is working now, but you know that it's not going to work five years from now. When you're companies like yours, for example, you have an incentive to figure this shit out early enough in the process. You want to sell it to 10 or 12 other universities if you can sell it really well to one. Am I right? Uh, we'd like to sell it to a thousand because right, we exactly. want to build a right. if it system. If it doesn't prove, works. if it doesn't prove, it do, if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter if it sort of just feels good today and feels good next year. But if it doesn't actually work, guys like Brent don't get to sell it to a thousand other schools. And especially in a vertical like the education sector, it is the most tight knit vertical on the planet. Yeah. Fundraising leaders all know each other. They've all worked with each other. And I joke with our marketing team sometimes where if the product doesn't work, you know, if we're yeah. not achieving what we can achieve, there is nothing we could say. There's no blog post or email yeah. subject line or creative campaign because they're all friends. And so if it works and they're all friends, then we can amplify the message and we can share the story and we can earn referrals and all of the things that we do. Um, but there's no, it's very hard to fake it in this sector. There are other sectors where there's just enough people out there that if you get a little percentage of them to buy your product, you know, all the Instagram ads you get, if they just get a few people to click through out of the 7 billion out there, it adds up to a big number. When you're talking about a few thousand colleges, you, you cannot get it wrong and, and succeed for, for very long. Okay, so I've got to ask you this, and then I'll, I'll, we'll wrap up. We, we usually hold on to our listeners for that. So um, what is, you work with big shops. I mean, you're working with big universities. I know that. Um, but there, there, in, some, in some ways, there's got, to be, there's got to be an opportunity now. When we think about everything that we've just talked about, you don't have to be the big shop in town to have the advantages of what we're talking about because you don't have to have the extraordinary budgets. You don't even necessarily have to have, you certainly don't have to have the most extraordinary donors because you don't have to rationalize the reason to hop on a plane and go to LA. And so, um, you know, I, I think about some of the institutions I've talked to in the last, say, five years and sort of sit in the sort of in the limelight, sort of in the shadows of some much larger institution, mm. healthcare institution or some larger, you know, university system. Some ways, some of what we're talking about sounds to me like it's sort of leveling the playing field. Does that make sense? I think that's right. And we've had, uh, I mean, when I think about some of our customers who've, who've really succeeded, I think about some of the kind of uh, let's call it mid-sized public institutions out yeah, there where yeah, there's not yeah. necessarily a, a very deep tradition of fundraising, but there is a high level of affinity. There's a high level of brand connectivity. There's a real latent potential in the community, but they don't have 200 years of fundraising tradition and culture to back them up. So there are leaders like Amanda Tribune at Western Kentucky University who has generated record-breaking results employing a lot of what we're talking about here. Brooks Hall at Louisiana Tech University, University of Wyoming. They're in markets where there's not necessarily, um, uh, you know, countless nonprofits to poach talent from necessarily. You've really right, got to right. build your own talent pool. And so having the data to help narrow things down, the technology to enable people, the training and coaching, 
it's it is leveling the playing field, especially in the markets where the the bench strength for major gift talent is not very deep, and you're not necessarily going to be able to convince somebody to come from Washington D.C. or New York City to Bowling Green, Kentucky, or Ruston, Louisiana, or Laramie, Wyoming, and so they all have passionate, hardworking, motivated student populations who have lived the benefit and the mission and the impact, who are looking for meaningful work out of college that can teach them hard skills and building programs to create on-ramps, by the way, of very diverse talent as well into the sector has been a real source of uh, positivity and impact results for Western Kentucky, Louisiana Tech, University of Wyoming, and countless others. Doesn't mean it still can't be applied very well to Harvard Business School. I think the same principles will hold, but they are doing really well without some of it. And so, uh, you know, you got to kind of know in the context of where you're going to innovate, picking the right spot, which I think in our case, some of the the mid-sized publics have been just incredible partners to get this going. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think about some of the, uh, I think about some of the institutions that that I'm sort of simmering on as well. Similar conversations. I think I had a conversation once with a, a woman who showed up at my road show uh, from Michigan Tech, for example. You know, so it's out in the hitherlands of Michigan. Yep. It's not, it's not, uh, yeah, yeah, and and. And she had some of the same challenges of being able to, I, I think I even sent somebody interview for a job for, and, and, and uh, I mean, it's just really out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and so unless you really want to go there, um, but, but the benefit, but, but going back to like, I, I, what I think what I'm most excited about, this goes back to even some of the stuff that I, I, I wrote a number of years ago. I'm really excited about that 28 year old. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's an author, uh, uh, there's an author, um, number my, my guest, my listeners have heard me talk about David Epstein's book range. Um, and he talks about the cult of early, he talks about the, the cult of the cult of early specialization. And I think we have a lot of young fundraisers who special, what I call this arms length fundraising and what you, here really moving away from some of this this work that deliberately by design keeps us distant from the donor and 28 year old talk to the donor five times a day and if she's taught if he or she is talking to a uh i mean goodness gracious that just gets me really excited because that 25 that 28 year old who's talking to a donor a couple of times a day um is learning high you know is learning yep. skills yeah, high demand, just almost not, everywhere. Not only the skills, Jason, but in one year, they could have one decade's worth of conversations with donors, <laughs> one decade's worth of objections, of concerns, of confusion, of negotiation, of challenging people to stretch a little bit yeah. more yeah. in one year. And so imagine that compounding over the next decade or two. Watching- they can be truly some of the most experienced fundraisers on earth in a decade or less watching those awkward flinches or that awkward pause when the, when you put out that, that ask it's, it's not about, I've said that. Yeah, exactly. Brent. I have said that to fundraisers. I'm like, get out there in the field 
and this is pre-pandemic, but I'm saying get out there in the field and put proposals out where, you know, ask for $5,000 and just learn how to process that reaction on their face. It's not a whole lot different than when you're asking for $100,000. And if you can learn how to navigate that, and we wouldn't get, you know, if I was putting that $5,000 proposal in front of you now, it would, the, the flinch or the pause or the awkwardness wouldn't be a whole lot different no matter what the size of the gift is. And we just don't have enough 28-year-olds, you know, learning how to navigate that. But what we also don't have, gosh, you've got me warmed up, buddy. What we also don't have is we don't have fundraisers who are consistently getting on the other side of that proposal and that uh, uh, that affirmation of what they just did. And then just learning how to lean into the relationship. I guess that's probably what's pretty exciting, too. Because if you think about, if you think about what, what perhaps getting more of them in front of the donor in sort of this virtual space, then they also learn how to also have a relationship with me in a way that's not always asking for money. No doubt. No doubt. And you can be much more intentional about stewardship in a very low cost manner when Uh stewardship doesn't necessarily mean going to have that obligatory lunch because you think you're supposed to, because it's a part of the stewardship cycle you can be much more intentional. And maybe the next co- time we have a call, Jason, and I'm stewarding you with a gift, I surprise you because I invited the dean to that Zoom too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And you had no idea the dean was going to show up. The dean never could have yeah. gone out to meet you for lunch. And and now we've not only been more efficient and trained the 28-year-old, we've created a far more fulfilling experience for the donor than uh, the traditional you know, offline stewardship might afford. So Instead I'm biased, spending, but I'm pretty uh, fired up. Instead of spending $400 on an airplane ticket, I spent $50 to send you a pretty decent gift in the mail that arrives before our call next week. Um, you know, I'm watching all this gift exchange yep. happen on some of these other social media platforms. Right. We could actually start sending our donors um, well-intended, intentional gifts that are much more customized, but cost, you know, fractions, what they, what it costs to hop on an airplane. So Fractions. Um, yeah. Brent, we uh, we lose our listeners at 45 minutes. I do want to give you an opportunity. One of the things I always ask guys and gals who uh, come from shops like yours, who do you want to hear from? So there's probably, we've got 150 to 200 people downloading this every day. Somebody's going to want to reach out to you. Mm-hmm. What do you want them to, uh, who's that person you want to hear from? Well, a couple of things. Obviously, as I said, we've worked primarily in the higher education sector. By way of our merger with Thank You. We're now working in the healthcare sector, the arts sector, the K-12 sector, the whole nonprofit um, spectrum. I personally am just starting to learn about the similarities and differences from education and other nonprofit verticals. And so if some of what I said today around reaching more of the giving personal uh, pyramid in a personalized way, you know, the 2% of the prospects that are getting coverage today and only half of those actually getting reached out to. If that resonates in your nonprofit context, shoot me a note on LinkedIn. Let me know that, that it did uh, just as I'm trying to you know get up to speed in the broader nonprofit landscape. And, and certainly uh, if these uh, uh, points of view align with priorities you're trying to uh, execute on, of course, reach out and would be happy to learn uh, more and share what I can. Um, check out our website, evertrue.com. We've got a lot of free resources there. We're trying to put out uh, uh, content the same way that Jason is. 
Uh, and feel free to shoot me an email as well, brent at evertrue.com or, or find me on LinkedIn, Brent Grenna, Evertrue, G-R-I-N-N-A. Jason, thanks so much for the opportunity to learn and, and share. And uh, it is uh, pretty cool that this started as a LinkedIn comment thread and uh, yes, we just sir. did this. So, All right, brother, you're always welcome back. Thanks, man. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.